Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 124 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. David C. Noe, and I'm here in the basement of the vomitorium with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm feeling good, but I'm a little worried about you. I mean, you're, you're, are, you, are you keeping it together over there? I am not. No? <laughs> this is going to be one of, those, one of those afternoons? That's correct. All right, yeah. The episode today is called Use Your Allusion Part 2. That's right. Classical references in popular music, and we are in your wheelhouse, aren't we? We are. So part two means we did we did this before, didn't we? Yes. Yeah, it was, uh, Some vague, dim memory. <laughs> you don't sound too happy about it. No. No? Uh, I'm happy about it, because you're right. This is in my wheelhouse. Absolutely. And you know, I always like the, the chance to defend my title as Johnny Pop. That's correct. And this is one of those. Um, for me, yeah. for me, this episode is going to be like Hercules wrestling with Antaeus. Really? On the shores of northern Libya. Would you stop bumping the microphone and moving the table around? <laughs> Sorry, my gosh. <laughs> yes, every time, right, mm-hmm. uh, Antaeus succeeded in touching Mother Earth, he regained his strength. Do yeah. you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we go through this episode, every time things start to, you know, kind of uh, go a little bit, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, awry? Yeah, awry. Yeah. They start to get a little weak. Yeah. You know, then it's going to, um, I'm going to touch the earth, so to speak, and it's going to go back to metal or Haydn, right? Okay. Real music. That's right. Not this pop stuff that you're trying to pedal to. So you're just, you're angry about, about all the genres and sub-genres that we're talking about today. And all of the above. Okay. <laughs> the sub-genres, all of the below yeah. and all of the all above. All the above. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Well, okay. All right, you got your you got your fighting gloves on. That's right. I'm gonna have to try to. I'll, I'll step two. I'll see what I can do. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, uh, I think we. I didn't ask you how you're doing, but I think we have a good idea. I think we have a pretty good idea. Right. So you we were, had a lot of smog yesterday. Oh, it's crazy here out in there. West Michigan, as and people today, may know. Uh, yeah. The news sources were saying that Grand Rapids had the worst atmosphere of anywhere in the world yesterday. Really? The yes. whole world? The Canadians were sending their smoke down from the shores of Ontario. I don't know what they were burning up there, but yeah. it all wafted down here. Well, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of area between Grand Rapids and, and Ontario. Why did and it, it's why all did, filled with smoke. Why did it stop here? I mean, I, it well, moved on eventually. It, I, I, it was pretty bad out there today. Again. It was like caucus belching forth smoke from the soft underbelly of some Canadian mountain. Nice. I, I, I like you bringing that back back around to the You're welcome. reference. Yeah. So, hey, Dave, you want to start us with an opening quote? Not today? really, but I'll do so. You'll do so. Okay. Yeah, because right. that's what we do here. All right. The opening quote today, skipping over the non-existent shout out. Yes. Is by one Nathan Cobb, the inventor of the salad, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. Didn't he shove together ham and little tiny corn niblets or something? Corn niblets and aren't there some like uh, deviled eggs in there too? Why would people do that? I don't know. Okay. Right. Nathan Cobb in the journal Aletheia, Truth, 2016. It's entitled Mythology and Music. Now, before you read this, let me just uh, a caveat, right? So um, I was trying to dig up you know, a learned quote or, or something of somebody writing, talking about right. the connections between um, you know, classical myth and, and, and pop music. Couldn't find anything. Non-existent, right? eh? So I don't either that's, that's a, uh, that's a vacancy waiting to be filled or right. it's just a sign that maybe this just isn't worth anybody's time trying to make these connections. I, I would disagree. I'm inclined yeah. to the latter. Okay, all right. I got you. At I got present. You. So, but I found this quote by my Mr. Cobb. Yes. And he is at least talking about kind of illusions 
in um, in in art that you know, post dates antiquity. Okay, so that would be a good jumping off point. A good jumping off point. And yep. here we go. Mythology has always inspired artists and composers, and many of the most important masterworks of the late Romantic and Impressionist eras utilize the vibrant stories of mythology broadly. The discipline of art is concerned with conveying a subject or concept in a way that will evoke an emotional response from the perceiver. That is pretty broad, Mr. Cobb. Yeah. Mythology provides a narrative and message familiar to every man, creating a common foundation from which the artist can lead his audience. Artists of the late Romantic and Impressionist eras used mythological stories in incredibly diverse ways, giving credit to the vast creative possibilities of mythology. Turner and Corot used Grecian myths to usher in a new style of art, while Renoyer, is that right? I think it's Renoir. Oh, sorry. While Renoir used the same set of mythology to prove himself a master of an established style. Composers like Wagner used the narrative foundation of Norse mythology to create an intricate operatic cosmos, whereas Ravel and Debussy, is that right? Is it Debussy? Debussy. Debussy, is that you say? Sorry. Crafted music, apparently neither of us knows, (laughs) into stunning portraits of Grecian myths. Corot's painting, Orpheus leading Eurydice from the underworld, is an excellent example of how mythology and art can be interwoven. Mythology has inspired many of history's greatest artists, and it played a pivotal role in the artistic world of the late Romantic and Impressionist eras. Okay. All right, so... so, so what do you make of this, Jeff? Well, I mean, I don't think there's any huge major insights from Mr. Cobb. I mean, no, no shade on, on Mr. Cobb. Mm-hmm. Um, After but, all, he invented the salad. Exactly, right. So always respect for that. Um, but I think that one of the things that I'm taking away here is that he, he's trying to kind of answer the question of, well, why bother w- with illusions in the first right. place? And that's something I, I'd like to explore for a, a little bit. And he, I think he, he says something along the lines that mythology is kind of a universal language. Okay. Right? And the best of our myths speak to something universal. It kind of hits us on a soul level, on a DNA level. So when you retell these stories, you refer to these stories, you're tapping into a power that can be very effective. Right. Right. And affective also. There you go. Right. It can produce emotion. Yes. In the uh, recipient. Exactly. Right. So... Um, it, this comes up when I when I teach my myth class. Like when I show them, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. This, in this film that takes place in the American South in the 1930s, but it's also it wears on its sleeve its debt to the Odyssey. It's a, right. it's a retelling, at least on some level. Which, which epic the Coen brothers say they have never read. Right, exactly. Right. They picked it all up just kind of by, what, the back of cereal boxes or th- where? Well, I think they're lying. Uh, because okay. one of the things that the Coen brothers are famous for is kind of messing with interviewers and, I and see. not answering their questions. So Got I, it. I would be shocked if they hadn't read the Odyssey. But even so, maybe they were trying to say something about still kind of the universality of that story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's out there enough that even if you haven't read the Odyssey, you've probably heard the Cyclops story. Correct. Right? And so one of the questions I always ask my students when we watch the film, and by and large, you know, the vast majority of them enjoy the movie. Right. But I ask them, why bother alluding in the first place? Right. Like, you know, why Why does retelling the Odyssey in that way make it a better story? Does mm. it make it a better story? So what's the point of, of an illusion? You know, so in Cobb's article, I mean, he's talking about mostly, you know, works of, of art and works of music from an era where perhaps amongst at least, you know, the educated set, this was more common knowledge. Everybody mm-hmm. grew up with, with the myths or, you know, if you had a you know, a kind of a Renaissance, post-Renaissance education. These were stories you simply knew. Okay. And so they're speaking a language that that they could be fairly confident that the the bulk of their audience would already know. Um, I don't think we live in that world anymore. So, so this is what we could, if I may interrupt, we could yep. label as the first use of an illusion is a, a template for a universal experience. Yes. 
Yeah. Is, okay. that, is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Right. Um, but um, I think that what I was trying to say is that um, I think that's that's very true that, you know, when, when we when we read myths or when I teach myths and even when students have never heard the story before, they can recognize something of themselves in it. Right. But when you're talking, when you're alluding in a work of art and a work of, of music, doesn't the power of the illusion depend upon the fact that your audience recognizes the illusion or or is that not important? Well, I think we spoke last week, maybe the week before, mm-hmm. about how illusions don't have to be received by the audience in the way that the artist intended for them to be valuable. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely true in the way that um, Ovid uh, alludes right. to, to Virgil, right? So, I mean, this kind of game playing has been going on for uh, for a long, long time. It's not just something that you know showed up you know after the Renaissance. Oh, let's allude to antiquity. Yes. Uh, for you know for whatever reason, this is has been going on in you know probably you know every culture that has a that has a um, you know, a, a, a back catalog of um, of works of art. Right. Which in fact is the definition of a culture. So right. so oh. that would be all of them, right? Right. There you, you go. You've got to have a, a common um, supply of literature and references in order for it to constitute a culture. Yeah. So what would you say is the second reason? Well, this is something I've seen. I mean, this is very popular today, and not not just in in pop music, but in in literature and I think in film as well. Um, is you you take a piece of a of a famous story, and you uh, kind of, you you flip the script, you turn the tables, and you you um, you focus on the experience of someone who's in the original versions of the story, the earliest version of the story, are marginalized. Right. And so, it, it, uh, an example that it, this made me think of is like Madeline Miller's Circe. Yep. So take that character and then tell the story from her perspective, or Margaret Atwood's The Pen- Penelope Ad. Right. And so the story of Odysseus, but from the point of view of, of Penelope. Or in this instance, maybe Mishka could record the podcast and we do the sound engineering. <laughs> Here we go. Exactly. All right. Flip the script. Turn yeah. the turn the tables. All right. So I guess we'll, we'll hear from Mishka how she feels, yes. about, feels about that. Right. So that's 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 a very kind of common uh, I think that I see nowadays. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, I think it's another one of these ways that that you know keeps the myths alive, um, and they can also uh, you know take on various shades. They often will have a more kind of you know ideological form to them. Yes, some people like that. Some people don't like that's that. That's exactly but, what Virgil was doing with the Aeneid. But true enough, Aeneas is a fairly minor character right. in the uh, Iliad. Yeah, until uh, his story is picked up by Virgil. Yeah, exactly. How about the third mean, the, the third use the of third illusions? Use. This one is, is um, we have one example. I don't know if we'll get to today. It kind of depends on how much time we got. Um, but um, this was a very popular one in terms of, in the realm of pop music, um, like in the late 60s, in the 70s, like the prog rock era, mm-hmm. where um, for whatever reason, a lot of prog rock bands became very fascinated with, with Tolkien okay. and um, Norse mythology and, and, and Greek mythology as well. And you would kind of tell the story very often in just kind of a simple narrated form um, as it's just kind of a, 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 a table on which you build kind of this very complicated orchestration. Hmm. And so it's kind of a, you use the story uh, as kind of a hook, but it's really there to kind of show the, the, for the musicians to show up what they're able to do. I see. Yeah. Um, so same story, different medium. Different medium, right. And it also seems to be like the more obscure story that you could pick, uh, the better. And so it's kind of like to show off not how, you know, look how great I am at this, at this, at this instrument, but look how, how deep my knowledge goes of kind of this obscure corner of, of uh, Arcana. That's very Alexandrian, right? Yeah. It's it, very it, neoteric. Yeah, very true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and the fourth one. And the fourth one, I think this all, this this um, you know, overlaps with with all the previous ones, is that you allude to something classical to raise raise the bar, yeah. raise the level. You know, simply by by um, you know tapping into uh, these ancient stories, 
it's a signal to the audience that you're saying something serious. Yeah, whatever is said in Latin sounds profound. Exactly right, right. right. So, and it's not necessarily to to show off. That might be part of it, but it's also to again, you, if you're going to tell a, a current, a contemporary story, and say, look how similar this story is to um, this very ancient, you know, universal story. It lends uh, weight. It lends gravitas to right. the story that you're telling. It's like using Roman numerals, right? Yeah. Uh, on your credits, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the credit scene, right? Yeah, exactly. It makes it look more sophisticated. Right. And so um, as I was kind of combing through, uh, doing you know, Google searches and trying to find uh, pop music that have mythological themes, and there's dozens upon dozens of examples of this, um, I noticed that a, a number of, of particular illusions come up a lot mm -hmm. um, lot and a lot of some are just kind of throwaway lines but you know the the siren you know, the siren song is, is something that is is dropped into lyrics countless times um and not usually in any kind of extended way that would be kind of be worthy of examination in a show like this right um orpheus and eurydice that's a story that seems to kind of continue to fascinate we have one example of that in our list today well it involves death and romance death and romance right exactly so which are um yeah and un unfulfilled wishes yes exactly right so I think it's kind of easy to recognize the power of that story. And then lots of, you know, vaguely Odyssean themes mm -hmm. um, about being homesick, missing home, being lost. Coming of age. Right. You might uh, you might throw in a, a, a Homeric reference right. uh, to, to underline that. Right. So I tried to pick a, a number of songs here that um, I didn't pick these songs because I, I, I love these songs. In fact, most of them, I wouldn't say I, I love them. Mm -hmm. I, find, I think they're interesting. I tried to pick a selection that had um, a varied... Um, selection of, of different kinds of, of references rather than saying, hey, these are the best. That's, right. that's not what, that's not why I picked Well, this. and would you even be able to pick which ones are the best? I mean, frankly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we've already established that your uh, aesthetic judgment is perfect. It is perfect. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. So what is the first one? Well, we're going to start off with a, a song by a band called A Perfect Circle. And this is a song called Orestes. Mm -hmm. And this comes from an album from the year 2000 called Mer de Nome. Well, there you have it, Jeff. So, how would you describe this musically, first of all? Um, it's it's kind of it it it, it re even though this came out in two thousand, this is um, to me sounds it stinks of of kind of the mid nineties, kind of um, depressing, depressing. It's it's kind of that over serious kind of grungy uh, template, uh, which I don't care for. At okay, all. yeah. So I'm uh, with you there. Yeah. <laughs> right, so. Now, how about the lyrics and the mythological meaning? Okay, so um, here's uh, uh, what I'd say is kind of a, a key lyric here. What, uh, what I mean, what's interesting about this song, this song is that it's called Orestes, but Orestes is never mentioned in okay. the song, right? Um, which is, uh, I think that's kind of a, an interesting way to allude, right? And mm -hmm. so um, the, the songwriter is basically saying, okay, this guy's name doesn't show up anywhere in the song, 
And if you want to kind of understand this better, you have to do a little, you know, homework yourself. I see. Or if you know the story, maybe you'll make the connection. So um, the lyrics go, liberate this will to release us all. Got to cut away, clear away, snip away and sever, sever this umbilical residue that's keeping me from killing you and from pulling you down with me in here. I can almost hear you scream. Hmm. That's pretty dark. Yes, right? it is grim. Right. And it, uh, one of the visceral. Things, it's very visceral. And so it made me think of... Um, you know, I think people listen to music, they they consume art for wildly different reasons. Absolutely. Right, exactly, right? So One of the number one reasons is to create mood. It, it, right. They want to create a certain mood, right. right? I don't feel right. I need to listen to some blues, uh, you know, or I feel sad. I want something that's upbeat. Yeah. And they don't even really think about the meaning much of what they're consuming. It's I just think, I think that's very creation true. of a mood. Right, exactly. Um, so this is a this is a, um, a song written by a, a local Grand Rapidian. This is by a guy by the name of, of Maynard Keenan. Mm-hmm. He's most famous for, I mean, this is one of his bands, but he's um, the kind of the lead um, songwriter for a band called Tool, hmm. which has um, got a, a rabid following. Really? Um, Never heard of it. There's a, a, a guy in the band that I used to be in, a huge Tool fan, and would you know, follow them around the country. It's kind of has kind of a... a Grateful cool, Dead. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So... Um, and so he he grew up in, in Grand Rapids. He went to Kendall, the Kendall School of Art and Design. If if, if you're local, you, you might you might recognize that name. Um, and had a, a famously for those in the know, embattled relationship with his father. Hmm. And so he visits this this theme a lot, kind of this um, this 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 relationship that he was wanted with his father, but never never had. And this seems to be a kind of a classic example of this. Hmm. So, which I thought was okay. You know, so Orestes in the myth, he's got a he's got a kind of return from a kind of exile, and he has to avenge his father. Yeah. By killing his mother. Right? Yes, that would be Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra. So, to me, to my mind, just from that basic outline of the story, it doesn't seem the best illusion for someone trying to tell a story about his son's embattled relationship with his father, unless you're talking about Orestes was you know his father was absent. True. For, for, in the war. In the war. But what is he going to choose? Is he going to cast himself as Electra? Well, I mean, get out of that family. I mean, there's got to be, there's a, a maybe better examples to talk about kind of a torture relationship between father and son. I just know Orestes is, is the best one. Yeah. I don't know if, if Maynard knows his, his myths all that well. Deeply enough. Right. Yeah. So I found this from, um, this is a quote from songfacts.com where there's, and there's nothing f- official or peer reviewed about this. This is where just anybody can go on and kind of, and say, Hey, this is what I think the song is about. And call it facts. And call it facts. Which okay. Is, and they, they kind of stack these up. But um, I thought this was interesting. Um, this, this uh, anonymous author writes, this song can be referring to Maynard's childhood. Maynard was abused as a child emotionally and physically. In this song, he's talking about how he often wanted to kill his parental figure who was abusing him. So maybe there you're getting some of the kind of the Clytemnestra aspect right. of it. And I don't know. Uh, but couldn't because of the emotional attachment he has to them just by being their son. Umbilical residue keeping me from killing you. So the only thing that's stopping him from going after his father is the fact of their their biological right. connection. And so this is a topic that Maynard hasn't mentioned in, in Tool songs as well. So apparently this is a well that he goes to often. Mm. So, I mean, just, it, this is a, a personal thing. That 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 kind of darkness in a, in a pop song... I just, I'm not drawn to that. I mean, it's just, maybe it's just kind of a story I can't relate to. Right. Um, but um, that's. Because you were blessed to have a good relationship with your parents. Yeah, well, ex- exactly. Right. So, I mean, I can understand, uh, you know, why why some people might relate to this and, right. and, and you know, kind of commiserate with this. But 
yeah, as a as a workup. This is not something I would go to to right. even create a mood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so we go on from there to something that's much more upbeat. Much more upbeat. Okay, so, well, it, uh, upbeat, um, but uh, not as upbeat as as this band is usually known for. Well, let's just roll the clip and let people figure out who it is. Okay. So that was Abba, of right? Of course, yes. Chiasmus. Yes, right, right. So that was one of the A's singing there. Yeah, what a yeah. sweet voice. Very sweet voice, right? So um, I always, what I always say to about people who claim that they don't like Abba, right? They're lying. Really? Yeah, I think everybody at some level likes Abba, even if they don't want to admit so it. So I don't know much. Is it Swedish? Is that who these yes, folks are? Exactly, okay, right. And the, is the Abba is that an um, anagram for their names? It is. So you have, I think it's uh, Anna, Anna Fried, okay, Benny, Bjorn. And then Annika, really another another kind of. You're not sure. I'm not sure about the second A. Yes. So the A's are the are the are the women, and the and the B's are the two guys. They Clever. Were, they were at one point. They were they were each they were married to each other. Okay. And it was the kind of the the falling apart of those relationships that kind of ended to ended to. Wow, that that's a story in itself. Oh, exactly, it's a saga. Right, right. but uh, tight harmonies. Tight harmonies and you operatic know, kind of. Uh, Range exactly, and then you know, pop hooks, you know, the size of meatballs coming at you, right? right. And so that's a mixed metaphor. I, I, anyway, I mix them. I mix them with the best, <laughs> right? I was, I was here. I heard not so long ago that you know, so every there's been lots of people who are you know dying for an ABBA reunion. Okay, forty years old, forty years later. And I think they were offered like upwards of like a billion dollars. No way. Night, and they still turned it down. No, what's money? Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so this one, this is a song called Cassandra hmm. uh, from from 1981. It was not released on the album. It was a B-side. Mm-hmm. And um, it's probably as, as somber as this band gets. I think when most people think of, of Abba, they think, you know, Mamma Mia, here I go. You know, that very bright, you know. No, I don't know, but I'll take your word for it. you you got to know some Abba I don't. Songs. You don't know Abba? Leave me alone. All right, all right. Um, I'm guessing uh, a good amount of our audience will know at least a Probably, couple, a couple of my Probably, because they're songs. educated. What do I know? <laughs> right, right. So, and... Um, I love the story of Cassandra, though, let me say. Okay, yeah. I believe she is likely the most sympathetic character in all of Greek myth. You put her at the top of the list. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One or two, she so, um, suffers so much mm-hmm. uh, and completely innocent, so far as I can tell, right? Yeah. A- approached by Apollo with this love advance, and she changes her mind at the last minute because, you know, you shouldn't uh, dally with the gods. They're so dangerous. Right. And Apollo says, can I just have this one last kiss then to, you know, say goodbye? I want closure on our relationship. And yeah. she foolishly agrees, at which point he spits in her mouth, mm-hmm. cursing her to always tell the truth, right? Uh, but never be believed. Right. Then for 10 long years, she prophesies of the fall of Troy and nobody listens to her. Exactly. Then she yeah. gets hauled off to, am I telling too much of the no, story? Go, go for it. She yeah. gets hauled off to uh, Mycenae, 
right? And there's that great scene in um, Aeschylus's Agamemnon where she's, uh, you know, trotted into the city of Mycenae and Clytemnestra plays nice mm-hmm. and then kills her. Yeah. It's awful. And she sees, she not only sees the, um, yeah, um, the death of Agamemnon coming, right. but she sees her own bloody death, which yes. is imminent as well. No, I'm with you. Very sympathetic. You know, I wonder, uh, you know, from an ancient Greek point of view, um, you know, the detail that she reneges on her promise. Well, is that? I mean, that's. I mean, that seems maybe that's kind of the potential the hubris. Point. You're saying? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I, I, not to say that the, the Greeks wouldn't have found her right. sympathetic. I think they did, but I think one of the lessons is in the, those kinds of stories is that if you make a promise to the gods. You're you're trapped. So maybe it's the rash oath. It, the, the rash oath, right? So but I mean, the, the she's, she's is, doomed either way, right? Right. So I mean, she recognizes. I mean, there's so many stories like that where, um, you know, the the, the human target of the gods recognize they're going the god is gonna stay beautiful and young forever. I'm gonna grow old and they're gonna right. just discard me. I think that's what Cassandra realizes, right? right? Um, but she chooses. I mean, it's. You know, neither choice is good. So what do you think about Abba's telling of the story? Um, I think that, you know, it seems to be on the face of it a fairly straight telling of, of the of the story. Down in the street, they're all singing and shouting, staying alive, though the city is dead. I, I see that's kind of a reference to Troy, Troy right? Yep. Hiding their shame behind hollow laughter while you are crying alone on your bed. Pity Cassandra that no one believed you. But then again, you were lost from the start. Now we must suffer and sell our secrets. Bargain playing smart, aching in our hearts. Not great lyrics. Pretty good. It's a, a little, uh, you know, I someone's, you know, I had a rhyming dictionary open on my table as I, as I wrote that. But it's not <laughs> oh, you're bad. You're tough. Yeah. You're well, tough. I mean, it's, it's okay. Um, beautifully delivered, though. Beautifully delivered, right? I mean, beautiful voice, beautiful vocals. I mean, right. If you, if you like, if you like that 80s synth, you're in that, you're, it's, it's, that's your wheelhouse, then mm-hmm. this is for you. Um, so, yeah, um, I think it has, you know, um, an aspect of, it's very common in pop music is that you dress up a very dark subject in in kind of you know in, in happy music. I wouldn't say this is a happy song, but it's it's the, the it's upbeat. It's upbeat. The the, uh, the the vocal is beautiful when that chorus kicks in. You got those nice harmonies, but it is about something you know rather sad. Is the the point to play a joke on the audience? No, I don't. To think defeat so. their expectation, we're singing something lively and in a major key, but it's actually grim and depressing. I don't think it's a joke. I think it's it's something that creates attention, mm. and that uh, that attention is interesting. And yeah. you like this? I do. I do like it. Okay. I mean, I, I, I see why this was a B-side. This was never a hit. No. no. It's not It's not the best of ABBA, but if I mean, if this is your B-side, hey, that that's that's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I was just kind of doing some other kind of searching. Uh, Cassandra is, is also um, a theme that a, a few, at least a few other pop artists have gone to. There's a, um, a contemporary artist uh, who goes by the, the very um, humble name of Emmy the Great. Mm-hmm. She also wrote a song called Cassandra, which also seems to kind of tap into a very literal retelling, repurposing of that story. Hmm. So this, this is one. And I think that, that you know, we were talking about kind of the universi- universality of myth. I mean, uh, who can't relate to, you know, um, to someone who's who you know this is right and nobody's listening to you right right i think that's a universal experience so where are we headed next jeff oh we're heading we're going to stay right in the same era so okay. uh, cassandra came from came out in 1981 this is from the following year this is a song by a band called utopia which was never a major band but was led by some would say the great todd rundgren um, Who's that? He is probably most famous as a um, as a producer, a record producer, and so he had, he was he's kind of the mastermind behind a ton of kind of massive albums from the 1970s and the 1980s, and he had kind of a um, a, a small solo career as well. Do you know? The, have you ever heard the song 
I don't want to work. I just want to bang on me drum all day. No. No. Okay. That, he had that one called one called Hello, It's Me. So he's been on both sides of this. He's probably best known for being the producer behind Meatloaf's uh, The Bad Out of Hell album, yes. which you know sold millions and millions. Right. And so he formed this band um, in the late 70s, early 80s called Utopia. And this is from a, a an album called uh, Swing to the Right. And um, the whole album is kind of a concept album. He was, re- he was um, reacting to... Uh, kind of the rise of the Reagan revolution. Okay. So Ronald Reagan elected in 1980. And um, Todd Redgren, you know, California, or actually East Coast lefty, was concerned about the direction of, of the country. And so he wrote this album called Swing to the Right. And this is a song uh, called Lysistrata. Mm-hmm. And let's listen to a clip. So what do you think, Jeff? First impression? I mean, not first impressions, but tell us what to think, Johnny Pop. I like it. Okay. I mean, that's a solid pop song. All right. What I mean, makes it solid I, I, the, instead it, of squishy? There's nothing, I mean, there's nothing revolutionary or, you know, uh, experimental about it. Uh, I mean, the chord progressions are kind of straight out of kind of pop music 101, but I think it's got, it's got a great, it's got a great rhythm. I like the changes. I, I'm a sucker for kind of those ooh-la-las in the background. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a big late 70s early 80s um tight pop song and i i mean i just, it's very listenable i mean that's uh to me that's a toe tapper a sing-along song and the rhyme scheme not bad lysistrata and yagata and some <laughs> things like that well i think when you choose lysistrata and you include that name in your song you're a bit handcuffed mm-hmm. so what are you what are you gonna do ricotta right. i don't know <laughs> so, again it's not shakespeare okay but i mean it's not supposed to be all right um so again he he's um Make of what you will of, of Mr. Rungard's politics. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, he was worried about kind of the uh, fist in the air, what he saw as kind of a, a, a militarization of American culture at the Hawk- time. Hawkishness. Hawkishness, right. right. And, and so Lysistrata, uh, for our audience who doesn't know, it's it's a, you know, that's most famous as uh, a comedy by Aristophanes mm-hmm. in which the Lysistrata is the central uh, female character. Right during the middle of the Peloponnesian War. Exactly right. And right. so she decides she's had enough of it. And so she gets the women of Athens to get band together. They, and no, they, no relations, right? No, yes. They deny relations to their husbands. Exactly. They deny relations to their husbands. They, they take over the Acropolis and they're going to force the men into peace um, by this kind of this very clever tactic. Right. right? This power play. Right. And so um, uh, it's a it's a very funny play. It's mm. a very it's a very graphic play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is I think this is an example of one. Of um, using Lysistrata in a uh, American rock and roll pop song. Okay, I, I just find that kind of interesting uh, in and of itself. And flipping the script. Yeah, and so it's from the point of view of um, it seems to be Lysistrata's husband or lover, and so he's he's um, he's begging her to pay attention to me, right? You know, open open up the bedroom door, let let me in, right? right? And uh, he's and he starts the song basically by saying, uh, "I've got to go to war. I've got no choice about this, right? right? You know, just you know, here, here can I can you just see me off, you know, one more time?" 
And by the end of the song, he's given in and he promises that he's not going to go to war. He puts down his gun. So was this song popular? No. It was, it was, I think it may, maybe cracked the top 40, you know, top 40. I think it maybe like 38 and then it dropped out. Can I'll, you imagine Casey Kasem introducing this song? <laughs> I would love to hear. Well, you know, if it cracked the top 40, he probably he did. Would, he would have to, yeah. right? But now I, I would actually doubt this, this cracked the top 40. It takes a certain amount of courage to label a pop song Lysistrata. It does, right. The only thing worse would be Thesmophoria Zeusai, <laughs> exactly. which right. was another Aristophanes play. Right. Try coming up with a rhyme for that That's one. right. <laughs> um... But I was looking around. He he performed this with uh, his band on um, uh, the David Letterman show. Oh, so I think he, I mean he 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 definitely or he or the record company said, oh this is this is a hit. Let's give it a try. Let's give it, a try. It, it never landed. Hmm. Um, but I I I'll listen I'll listen to this. I'll okay. put that on. I think of, of all the songs we're doing today, this might be my in terms of like you know just pop goodness. Yeah, probably my favorite. Okay. Yeah. So we move on from that to uh, the final one before the looming break. Yes. And that will be uh, No One Knows My Plan? Yes, by They Might Be Giants. Okay, roll the clip. Now, what is that, Jeff? I love it. I do. I love it. it Why? Because <laughs> it's so left field. Where's the virtuosity? Oh, it, it's the it's just the it's the weirdo combo of things, right? You di- you didn't go through a They Might Be Giants fa- uh, phase. A sort of. Oh, you did. No, not really. I never owned one of the albums. Okay. I never owned a T-shirt or went to one of the concerts. Okay. But some 400 years ago, when we were young men, yes, they were really popular. They were uh, at our former institution, it's which true. shall be named Calvin College at the time. Yeah. A lot of people were running around crazy about they might be giants. So you remember that? I do. Yeah, but yeah. I I got the impression that they were um, I don't know marketing themselves as like the intellectual choice. I think there's some and truth. I to didn't that. want to follow the intellectual choice. <laughs> Unless the uh, the you know the medium was actually intellectual, so. I see. Now, what's this? It was if, a reaction. If we can kind of yes, you know, revisit psychologize your, me your for a moment. At this point, you know, early mid nineties, were you were your your musical taste were they already kind of solidified in the way that they are now? You yeah. Are, okay. Okay. Classical music and yeah. you know um, heavy stuff. Gotcha. High tempo virtuosity gotcha. and operatic. So you were already you were kind of already into that. Then. Yeah. So okay. I enjoyed a few of these songs, but they got just too cutesy after a while. I, okay, I can I can see that. I can sympathize with that. I think that what I. I like. I was very into They Might Be Giants for uh, a good decade. Wow, and a decade. I did. I mean, I, I think there's kind of a sweet spot of their albums, which I think by and large are very, very good. This is from an album called uh, John Henry from 1994, which is a is a great album. There's something about Istanbul and Constantinople. And... That was a, that was a cover song, so that's not my favorite. Okay, things, but um, I didn't even know that. That's that's one that that they're probably sadly known for. Why is that sad? Because it's a cover song. It's not even their own stuff. So I mean, there's so much. There's so many much better hmm. they might be giants uh, songs but i have a personal connection to i was um in 1990 they going to do some name dropping here no well no in 1990 i had not heard of this band um but i was having out, out in california and i went to a taping of the tonight show okay and the guest host then i was jay leno who right. took over and that tonight's musical guest they might be giants hmm. and i heard of them they came out and they were weird and they were funny and they were great 
And um, and you were hooked. I was hooked, and so I, I went on that trip. I went out and, and bought the cassette of their album Blood, <laughs> um, and I loved it. That's it's, the one with the bluebird of friendliness. Yes, isn't exactly. It? In Istanbul is on that one as yeah, well. So it's that's part. that's a good line, bluebird of friendliness. Yes, exactly. And there's um whistling in the dark. Right. There's also the, the there's there's a number of classical references to the song. There's uh, in that in that song um, of the bluebird of friendliness. I was like, you know, after killing Jason off and, th- and countless screaming arguments. Yes, I remember that. But what does that mean? <laughs> well, that's, it's that's, not a, cons- there's no consistent story. That's what got me. I'd yeah. almost prefer, I can't believe I'm saying this publicly. I'd almost prefer country music. Really? Yes. Okay. That's, no, that's your, it's going a long way, isn't it? A very long way. Because at least there's a consistent storyline. Right. They tend to all be the same. Yes. Loss of vehicle, loss of pet, loss of woman, loss of job. Exactly. But there you can at least follow the story. Yeah. With these kinds of uh, two smart pop songs, what's the story? Right. I, I, mean, I, I get that, that critique. I think that, you know, if, if, if all of my collection were kind of in this vein, I, it would, it would drive me insane. I think right. Like, you know, sometimes I, I have a taste for a little bit for the weird. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think I remember friends of uh, of mine you know, talking about these various songs and just kind of um, uh, and being astounded just by the oddity of it all, mm-hmm. and kind of reveling in it. Xenophilia. And so it's, it's a lot of it just seems to be kind of like a you know Rorschach blots. Okay. You know, thrown at the wall, and it's kind of up to you what it's you. It's great when you're an undergrad, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Maybe it doesn't age all that well. Uh, that's what I was thinking. You stayed with it for a decade. I did. So let's talk about this song. And no one knows my plan. Right. So uh, here, are kind of the key lyrics here. So when I made a shadow on my window shade, they called the police and testified, but they're like the people chained up in the cave. In the allegory of the people in the cave by the Greek guy, no one understands. No one knows my plan. That's Plato. <laughs> it is Plato. Why, why do they say it like that? <laughs> by the Greek guy? Right. Because it's, it's funny. Okay. Right, exactly. It's just kind of a tossed off reference to Plato. In the allegory of the people in the cave by the Greek guy? By the, by the Greek guy, yeah. It's like reading someone's um, you know, class notes for philosophy 153 or something. Right, who didn't catch Plato's names. Oh, some, well, some, it's just some, the some Greek, Greek guy. guy. <laughs> right. Oh. Mm. So I think you can either find that irritating or you can find it kind of charming. Okay. Do you want to read the random internet interpretation? Right. So there's a whole website dedicated to Don't even tell fan me. interpretation of They Might Be Giants. Where songs. did the name come from? It's the name of um, uh, of, a, of a, like a, a movie from the 1950s. Because they might be anything, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So I remember when I watching, again, this is not Leno, but Letterman, when they were the musical guests and, and Letterman, who I... At least back in the day, I really, really liked. Yeah, uh, he's he's interested. Tonight's musical guests, um, they might be giants. And he turns to Paul Schaefer and goes, "And um, when are we going to find out?" Yeah, <laughs> I, I saw that joke coming. You did. In fact, I just made it a few you minutes did. ago. Exactly right. Right. Um, you so, watched a lot of late night television. Well, back in the day, I did. Not anymore. No, okay. I'm in bed by nine o'clock. Seven thirty. Right, man. Get your AARP meal and uh, t- turn in. Exactly right. Okay. Random internet interpretation. Right. So this is um, again anonymous source. Take make of it what you will. The shadows in Plato's allegory are representative of false ideas, misconceptions, say of happiness or love or another philosophical idea. The people in the cave only saw these shadows as puppets. The manipulators were puppeteering. Until one guy gets out and sees the things that only he saw as, shad- as shadows of before. True ideas, although the sun is representative of actual full enlightenment, but that's another story. Therefore, when the speaker sings about making a shadow on the window shade and the neighbors calling the police, he's saying that he was falsely accused of a crime he did not commit. The neighbors saw something that they thought was criminal activity, but it really wasn't. They didn't get the whole story. They only saw the shadows, not the forms. Okay. Right? There was a lot of these interpretations that, that this is about... 
uh, being accused of a murder that we yeah. didn't commit. This proves my point. <laughs> what is your point? Which is that the story isn't coherent because someone else has to fill in all the gaps and explain it to us. But isn't that and kind of his, fun? And his interpretation is as good as anyone's. What's wrong with that? It used to be more fun to me than it is now. <laughs> right? right? I just want a well-told story. Gotcha. I don't have to fill in all the gaps myself. So you don't you don't like you don't like songs where it's kind of left up to you to kind of how how to how to feel about it. You want to be told what to feel. Yes, I like a good <laughs> I like a good pedantic song. Right. So you're you are a country music fan, right? <laughs> no, I'm not. There is no nuance in, in well. This country. Oh, I can't believe you just lost half the audience. <laughs> the only thing I don't like about country is um, the vocals. Is the twang? Yeah, yeah. I don't like that affect. Yeah, it does not appeal to me. Right. A lot of other things about it, I, I like a lot. You know, the uh, the guitar playing. Who's the, is it Brad Paisley? Is the, the he's great, a great guitarist? Great guitarist. Yes. Yeah, that's very appealing. Right. So yeah, I sh- I do I would. the slide guitar. I like that sound. The dobro, the dulcimer. Well, because we uh, we should we should clarify. I think I think there are uh, like bluegrass music. Yes, you, I'm you know, I'm verging into bluegrass right. here. When like, in terms of like you know, the great bluegrass players, oh, they're phenomenal. What, right. what, I guess when I say country, I mean like that. That horrible kind of pop country. Shania Twain. Yeah, it's just... Uh. Yes, but speaking of verging into bluegrass, yes? it's time for the ads. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, they've now been in business, I think, uh, as I always say, as old as me. Right. 52 years. Yes. And they have been um, bringing affordable... Uh, wonderful erudite translations of the classics as well as many other corners of academia uh, to you uh, all this time from where they're there. They got their business offices in Cambridge, Indiana and Indianapolis, Massachusetts. Is that where they are? There's, there's I'm quite sure. Some kind of switch around. That Check it way. out. Okay. All right. Uh, anyway, um, if you've been listening to, uh, well, from the beginning uh, of this, of this podcast, uh, we have been using uh, translations published by Hackett uh, for many of these episodes. Uh, most recently, um, Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Aeneid. Uh, we were using a couple of translations of the Ovid's Metamorphoses from the episode right before this one. Lombardo and Ambrose. Yep. Um, we use some of their stuff on a particular Augustan episode. Yes. Eventually, we'll use a lot of their materials for tragedy when we get there. Yeah, we got to get to tragedy. Some of you may be thinking this whole podcast is a tragedy. <laughs> right. I'm sympathetic. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get there eventually. Yes. Um, I've uh, as I've often said, I use these these texts in, in my classrooms. I have I have them on my own shelves. You got a copy in your glove box in I, case of a, an emergency. Exactly right. If I'm if I'm stranded somewhere, I want to have my um, uh, Lombardo's Metamorphoses That's at, right. at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and these guys have been with us from the very beginning. They've um, they believed in us, and um, you you dropped them like an email just saying, "Hey, would you be interested in this?" And they were on board uh, right from the beginning. That was my chutzpah, but it paid off. We're going on three years. Three years. So yeah. almost three of those fifty-two years that they have been in existence, they have been closely aligned with the Ad Nauseum podcast. Right. So not only a great product, um, but but great people. Yeah. There as well. So instead of cursing the darkness of no one's interested in ancient and important things, why don't you do whatever is cursing the darkness, bless the light, yes. and um, you know, sign on with Hackett, purchase some of their products, support this humble podcast. Yes. So um, to do that, uh, take yourself to hackettpublishing.com, it's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com, check out their vast array of, of offerings, find the ones you want, click them over to your little uh, digital satchel. And um, if you type in this coupon code, Dave, what's the coupon it code? It is AN2023. AN2023. That will get you... 20% off and free shipping. And there is a silver lining to this purchase as well. What's that? Like a foil-wrapped baked, a foil wrapped baked potato. <laughs> yeah. The silver lining is you support this podcast. 
So do not hesitate. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Mr. Mark Helweg, the entrepreneur who lives over in Portland, Oregon, decided it was time uh, that people stop drinking this mass-produced coffee, and he thought, I will invent a machine that will elevate people's home coffee experience. And he did it. He created the Ratio 8 and then the Ratio 6. Jeff, you are an owner of both machines. Yes. And uh, tell us what you think, please. Um, I love these machines. I use my Ratio 8 every single morning. And Dave, guess what arrived in the mail last week? Uh, your hulking flag on. My hulking flag and my, my weighted... That's incredible. My weighted carafe. Did you pour out the kryptonite and then uh, put some coffee in there? I did. Oh, my goodness. And it's it's uh, it's a game changer. It's everything you hope for it and is, more, right? isn't it? So I mean, Don't put it in the microwave. No, no. <laughs> I will remember not to Because that. it's mostly metal. It is. So... It's a serious piece of equipment. It is. It's heavy. People are always astounded by its heft. Right. So, I, I mean, before this, I had the, the beautiful hand-blown glass carafe, which now sits on the shelf as kind of a conversation piece. Right. And so what I had to do is I get up in the morning uh, much earlier than my wife does. And so I'll make a, I'll, I'll brew up a pot for myself. Uh, but by the time she wakes up, you know, that coffee has gone cold. Right. Well, no longer. This carafe keeps that, that coffee hot for hours. Piping. Piping hot. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I love that machine. Yeah. So just this morning, I was at um, a what a restaurant establishment, and uh, I won't try to give away the name of it, but it was something like the regional domicile of waffles. <laughs> gotcha. Right. <laughs> and uh, the coffee was surprisingly passable. Yeah. Oh, it, it was. Not at bad. The, the regional domicile of waffles. At the Ardoff. That's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I was I was comforting myself all the time by saying tomorrow I will again drink from the ratio eight. Exactly, something to look forward to. Right, right. It does. I mean, there is that. There, I, I wouldn't call it a downside, but it it uh, it, it ruins. Uh, coffee. Your other coffee experiences. Your coffee experiences. For sure. Right, exactly. Right. So if you want to have your other coffee experiences ruined, yes. uh, listener, <laughs> go to racialcoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O, browse the extensive catalog, look at the eight or the six. Don't be put off by the price. Yes, these are not inexpensive machines, but they're not going to break down and need to be thrown away like the squirty plastic extrusion varieties you can pick up at the store. Very, very true. So what should they do then when they've selected their choice? Then you would type in the coupon code ANCOA6. Yes, this is good only for June. Right. A6. A6. And you'll get 15% off your purchase. What does the A stand for? What, what it stands we? for affordable. Affordable. There you go. All right, Dave, as we get back into it, um, we're going to cover a song that I I discovered. I mean, of, of all these, this is the only one that I discovered just simply by typing in Google pop music and classical references. You say we're going to cover it? Am I playing bass or what's going on? Oh, I was hoping to. Uh, bass and harmonica? I'm not chill enough for bass. No. <laughs> you do have to be chill to play bass. Yeah, you do. Right, you just have to kind of loom there in the background. I can play a mean harmonica. Really? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, um, Shall yeah. we just roll the clip? Yeah, let's do it. Stars with weariness 
So Jeff, how would you describe that? We're going to start with you. What would you what did you think of that song? Uh, it sounded like it was trying to be a little bit of Dylan. Hmm. And um, focusing on poor diction for the most part. <laughs> how can I sing these words with the least amount of diction? Not a fan. Oh, I got gotcha, you. Gotcha. I like every consonant very carefully articulated. Oh, really? I want it to bite and snap and stand out to you, the gotcha. listener. Okay, I got gotcha. you. All right. So you, see, you, you the the Dylan comparison. I, I definitely has. I think it has kind of a '60s mm-hmm. vibe to the the band I thought of was. Um, uh, like the birds. I was thinking of the birds yeah. just now. Kind of, kind of that, like the birds. Yeah, kind of that breathy, heavy reverb vocal. Yep. Yeah. Um, Aspiring a little bit to the Beatles, maybe. Yeah, definitely Beatles. Uh, Tommy yeah. James and the Shondells. <laughs> wow, now you're digging. Crimson and Clover, you know that song? Of course I do. Right. Yeah. So it, they, they're employing um, this uh, a very kind of common, I don't know if you call it a trick, but I, I, well, I'm going to call it a trick, a songwriting trick, where you have the um, you know, that, that acoustic guitar riff more or less the song does not change hmm. and the way you kind of keep it interesting the way you kind of build tension is by just simply changing the bass hmm. and so you have kind of a four note bass progression but that the acoustic uh never changes or it changes very very little it's yep. the same um and that's a very um kind of easy way to kind of construct a pop song and uh i gotta admit that i i can i'm kind of a sucker for it hmm. so i'm i i think i like i like this song a lot better than you did okay um it's it I, again i wouldn't say this is a great song but it's an interesting, again, if we're, if we're exploring the classical illusion part of it, um, it's told very vaguely from the point of view of the Minotaur. Right. And he's in his labyrinth. Um, he seems to know Theseus is coming. He's waiting and Theseus never shows up. Yeah. But why is he waiting? <sighs> I, he wants to be killed. He he wants to have the chance to kill. Yeah. I know this is where someone would say, oh, come on. Don't subject <laughs> a pop song to any kind of, you know, logical or philosophical scrutiny mm. but but that's what i have to do i want to understand what is he saying yeah yeah ex- exactly right no i think it invites those kinds of questions right. i think that's fun i think that's kind of i think that's interesting okay right? so the, the kind of the sense of um i think you can this can be overdone is that you take the there was um a broadway musical that came out a number of years ago called wicked yes which tells the story of wizard from the, from the point of view of the wicked witch of the, right. of the west you take the villain and then you kind of make the villain a hero to right. some degree. I think that's, it's almost become kind of a cliche. Well, they should tell the story of the Wizard of Oz from the perspective of the Munchkins. The, oh, oh, yeah. And the name of it should be Stilts. <laughs> You've thought about this, haven't no, you? No, just, I just thought it up. <laughs> just just thought on it right the now? spot. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you, you jot that down in your notebook. I will. <laughs> One of the many musicals I'm working on, as you know. Right. Including uh, Be That Way, remember? Oh, oh yeah, that's, you got to come up. The first musical based entirely on resentment. <laughs> Every song? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'd go to that. I know I'd you buy, would. I'd buy that album. If you didn't go, I would be quite upset. Right. So our our um, our Minotaur in the song, or Minotaur, is it? Yeah, Minotaur, as they pronounced it. Right. I dreamed one night that I was young, but life had passed me by, haunting all the gates and doors, watching from the sides. I read my future in the stars, which is hard to do when you're stuck in a labyrinth. That's true. <laughs> right. And with bull eyes, they don't have good um, long-range vision. <laughs> no, it's terrible. With weariness and love, I spent long nights waiting for Theseus to come. It's not happening no more. It's not happy no more. I am the Minotaur. Yeah. I am the Minotaur. More Minotaur. Right. Mm-hmm. So. You could have thrown in a shore, uh, don't you think? Exactly. Yeah. What's, what's all of this for? Yeah, something right? like that. <laughs> something um, something to ignore. Yes. There's, yeah, there's a Why lot is of the path lined with spores? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
This there's another uh, website called Pop Matters, okay, which reviews um, lots of different albums. This is a um, we should say this is a song called Minotaur mm-hmm. uh, from a band by a band called The Clientele. 2010. 2010. Well, the Clientele. That's a pretty cool name for a band. You think so? And from an album actually called Minotaur. So this mm. is like the, this is the they title went big. Track. They went big. Okay. Uh, they were all in, and so on this this um, website Pop Matters. Uh, the reviewer writes, while Minotaur is a song written from the perspective of the fabled monster from Greek mythology, one waiting for the hero's thesis to slay it, McLean, that's our singer-songwriter, seems to be referring perhaps to the group's general lack of commercial success. The band is more popular in the U.S. than its native Britain. In its opening lines, I dreamed one night that I was young, but life had passed me by. So you, you eh. feel the, the Minotaur is... Is he, you're you're stranded? Like the the, the one thing that's going to make you famous that, that is being killed right. by this hero that's not even going to happen. I see. You're it's a little unknown. bit of a stretch though, because if you're more popular in the U.S. Mm-hmm. with 330 million people than in your native Britain with I don't know how many 40 million something right. like that. Yeah, probably less. Aren't you already having success? I mean, I I don't. This did this, this guy did this guy at popmatters.com run the numbers? I don't I don't know, but I I would guess that. If you ran the numbers, you were, a, yeah, they might be more popular in the U.S. than in Britain, but it still means that hardly anybody's ever heard of these. Yeah, I'd never heard of them. So, and I think it's one, you know, it's, you know, it's since the digital era, you know, making it as a band, nobody buys music anymore, no. right? So, you know, that's... No, they subscribe to Spotify. Right, exactly right. And where, you know, artists will get, you know, uh, 1.2 cents for every play. Right. Right. So, I remember reading, um, uh, do you remember the brand, the band Cracker? No, kind of popular in the '90s. No, um, but um, I'm forgetting they they had kind of a, a semi big hit, and um, he wrote this article kind of detailing how much he made from Spotify plays. Right, and there were millions of plays of this particular song. Right, and he, as the principal songwriter for the song, made like thirteen dollars and eighty six cents. Wow, that's incredible. And he was he was saying that you know, this he is- should have gotten a sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so you know, so so bands to make it today, right? You have to make your you make you got a tour, you got a tour, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't just rely on album sales anymore. No. So maybe that's what uh, McLean from the clientele is. He's I don't know if he's lamenting. So that. you're having some sympathy for him. I am. Okay. Right? And so, but um, I think it's again kind of an interesting twist is that you you write this kind of this this melancholy pop song and invites you to be sympathetic um, with this half bull. Mm-hmm. half-human creature that's there basically to devour anybody that wanders into his domain. Yes, I think we've mentioned uh, this before, but most visual portrayals, with maybe one exception, from antiquity at least, it is um, human body bull's head. Yes. There is one ancient depiction of bull's body human head. Oh, really? Which is deeply disturbing, that isn't is it? That is horrifying. Yes. Why, why, that. why, though? I don't know what by that is. I mean, um, I'm going to use the L word. I think the, the, you know, oh, liminality? So the, the, the minotaur is a liminal creature, right? You know, what is but does, it? Does it matter, though? You want, a, you want a human... Isn't it better to have a human head? That's where our intelligence resides in the brainal portion, right? I suppose. I think it probably comes from just kind of a reversal of expectations. We're so kind of attuned to... If you see a depiction of the minotaur, oh, yeah, bullhead guy. Yeah. And so if you flip that, okay, that doesn't work. Does a bull's head look more like a human head than a bull's body looks like a human body? I, th- I think that's it. You think that's it? I think it? that is it, right? That's what makes it so disturbing. <laughs> they both have people faces, though, <laughs> they do, right? unlike birds. <laughs> well, what, it oh, is, that's right. Birds, the, the, it creepiness, is. the creepiness of birds. Yeah, I think that's the subtitle to, you know, the life of birds. <laughs> we don't have people faces. That's right, 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 right. It gets pretty crazy. Yeah. 
But let's go on. Let's go on. Okay, so the next song <sighs> is by um, uh, a woman by the name of uh, Sarah Boreas. Yes. Who is a wonderful musician, great uh, piano player. Did she write a song called Don't Write Me a Love Song? Yes. Or Not Gonna Write You a Love yes. Song? What is the title of it? Yeah, not, that's kind of the, the hook is Not yes. Gonna Write You a Love Song. But I think that is a great song. Great pop song. Great piano riff. Great singing. Yes. she's got. A, I really like that song. She's got a wonderful voice. And this is a song from her album, Amidst the Chaos. This is our most, most recent song. 2019? That's four ago. years ago. Yeah. Uh, We're covering this on a classics podcast and it's only four years old? Only four years old. That, I'm not sure that's right. This is a song called Orpheus. And let's listen to a clip. that it's beautiful isn't it yes i'm predisposed to like it good well i'm glad to hear that yeah no no i think it's a it's a beautiful song she's got a beautiful voice um she's kind of known for her her piano based music and this is kind of a a, a turn in a slightly different direction mm-hmm. um but i thought this this was beautiful so it, she's tapping into the orpheus and eurydice myth mm-hmm. and when i listened to the song and I, I read the lyrics um i thought okay then she's using it as as a um as um it's a love story. It's it's a it's a, it's a broken-hearted anthem, right? She does not want her her Orpheus to go. Don't you turn like Orpheus? Right. Just stay here, hold me in the dark, and when the day appears, we'll say we did not give up on love today. Right. So it's not it's not directly about. She's not retelling the story. But it's a, it's a reference. She's comparing she's comparing um, the one she loves to to Orpheus, mm-hmm. and um, so she's playing the Eurydice role, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's that. Um, so I think I like, like I said at the beginning of the episode, um, that seems to be a very common story that that um, uh, pop musicians would go to. It's, he was a musician after all. Exactly right. Orpheus was. It was his playing that made hell stand still temporarily. Mm-hmm. And right. And um, you know, like Cassandra too, I would say that Eurydice is a very sympathetic figure. And right. She's very two dimensional. We don't really get to know her. I mean, in like in Ovid's telling, you know, she's, she's dead before she can say a word. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she exists as this, as this quest object for Orpheus. Um, but the fact that she, you know, she's, you know, out walking barefoot, she's bitten by a snake and she goes down into, into Hades. When she's being chased, remember, pursued right. yeah, yeah, by yeah. Aristias, yes. another one of Apollo's sons, because he, uh, you know, has been provoked by Cupid to fall in love with her. Right. And in the course of her flight, she um, dies by stepping on the snake. Right. So she. I mean, so she's sympathetic. I mean, it's a very, it's a very similar to a story like with Daphne too. Right. Right. So under the influence of, of Cupid, she's in, she's in danger. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, as such, she's, she's very, um, she's very sympathetic. Um, I think again, from the Greco-Roman point of view, this ultimately that story seems to be much more about Orpheus uh, to me. Yes, it's about, it's about the immortality, or potential immortality of literature. Yes, exactly right. 
um, the, the divine power of of of, of song to, right. to transfix even the gods. Yes, to turn back hell. Right, and so Orpheus is he's uh, one of these countless death and resurrection figures. Right? Yes, he can go down into Hades. Um, and he can return. Yes. Um, but it's, it's at a cost. He doesn't get everything. He doesn't get everything. Right. And so um, here in the song, um, Sarah is singing as Eurydice, and she's kind of locating the heartbreak on that particular character. So I think it falls into that camp of kind of turning the tables. Yes. Taking an element of a well-known story, but say, but the, the focus is, is going to be in this direction. Right. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, Apollo and Daphne. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me that um, a country music star country music performer could retell the story of apollo and daphne in a nascar setting <laughs> go on don't you think that would work <laughs> what are you thinking uh, exactly. well they're both in, they're both in you know cars racing around the track and apollo's trying to gain on daphne and, <laughs> and at the last minute she has some kind of apotheosis right some yeah. some kind of not apotheosis some kind of a um transformation into i don't know what but yeah a yacht or um <laughs> A different, a different mode of transportation. Formula One, right? <laughs> or like a biplane or a um, some kind of a glider, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he's down there shaking his fist in his his NASCAR vehicle. I'd listen to that song. You know, if we uh, the rest of it just writes itself. Yeah, I, I gotcha. I think ultimately, if if we do a Use Your Illusion three, mm-hmm. we should look for um, classical references in country songs. Are there any? I don't know. I think that would be really interesting. Hmm. But but um, then we would have to listen to some country music. I know. It, well, I mean, these things come at a cost. Yes. Right. <laughs> so the last one we're going to. Oh, do you want to read a little bit of um, another one of these uh, highly reliable <laughs> websites? Songfacts.com. Yeah, yeah, songfacts.com's had to say about this. It says Barreas expanded on the song's meaning during an interview with Vanity Fair. Okay, so here we have the. Um, the songwriter herself saying what the song is about. Um, but as I learned in grad school, it doesn't matter what the author says, right? It's uh, the death of the author. Oh, yeah. All meaning is given by the audience. Right. None, none of it comes from the none. author. None. So, so disregard what I'm about to read. Banish the thought. Right. So she explained it as it is about learning to cope with the confusion created by this new sort of new chapter in the world where politically and socially and culturally, culturally it can sort of feel like the world is on fire a lot of the time. So in 2019, she was responding to uh, the political moment that she was feeling. It was a little bit pre-COVID even. It was a year before COVID. Imagine if she had said this post-COVID. Right, so, but I, I, don't, I don't care for these wiggle words, though. This uh, sort of new chapter, it can sort of feel like, uh, to me, that indicates a person's not really sure what they mean. No, exactly right. And that's I guess what, that's okay, but what are you doing talking to Vanity Fair, right? The I read this. magazine of record. <laughs> I read this and I said, that's not true. Well, uh-huh. she, she, she doesn't even know what the song is about. I mean, the song works so much better if you locate it in kind of a deep personal relationship. What's wrong with that? Right. What's wrong with that? It's a, it's a, it's a I mean, uh, the broken heart is a bottomless well, right? That, that, that song, good songwriters can always go back to. You don't, nice. have, you don't have to make it about something political. Yes. Right? That's a country music title right there. The broken heart is a bottomless well. Man, you should be writing this down. You can put this in your musical. Yeah. Right. So I really want to hear this musical. I feel like you're mocking me a little bit. That's all about resentment. Yeah, Be That Way. <laughs> that's the t- that's a working be title. Be That Way, exactly. I've been working on it for... That's the signature song from that, That's right? correct. Exactly. I've been working on it actually for most of my life. <laughs> the last one we're going to look at yeah. is uh, from a group called what? Genesis. This is the Phil Collins group? Yes. This is in their kind of this is from nineteen seventy one. Do you know a bit about kind of their history? No. All I know is he plays the drums well. Yes. I don't care for his voice. <laughs> I got you, right. So they're probably mo- best known 
uh, for like all their pop hits from the 80s. Yeah. They changed as a band in the 80s. They really went kind of three-minute pop song. But in the 70s, they were this famous prog rock band where they had these 13-minute mm. songs. You know, you know Peter Gabriel? You heard of like, Guitarist? Uh, uh, he's a In Your Eyes um, sledgehammer. Okay, you're okay, losing never, me. You're losing me. He was um, he was an original member of Genesis before he went solo, and he was still in the band. He had his exodus, you might say. He did have his exodus. Yeah, exactly. Right. He left the band in the mid '70s, but um, he was kind of the the leader of the band. Okay. And so it was a lot of these long, complicated, uh, virtuosic melodies, mm. and often layered with kind of mystical, mythological themes. Uh, and so this is this is from a album called Nursery Crime. Crime spelled C-R-Y-M-E. Oh, instead of rhyme, it's a it's a play on words. Exactly. Oh. Right? 1971, and this is a song called The Fountain of Salmacus. Okay. Let's listen to a clip. From a dense forest to two dark pines Now tide arises back an island Within a hidden cage Lips and get the child Well, Jeff, I think that's enough of a sample, maybe more than enough. <laughs> it is, exactly. I'm, now I'm feeling kind of sad that this is the song we're ending. We're with. ending, yeah. <laughs> that, Ooh. Oh, it's it, it just, it, it's self parody they they take themselves way too seriously it is but i mean this is it i mean it's out of that early 70s art rock um milieu it's it is it just kind of it's laughable it didn't that did not age well that's peter gabriel singing live there mm. there in the chorus you i think you could hear a little bit of kind of the melodic genesis rock that you hear later in the late 70s early 80s but for the most part wow that's so so this bad. was the kind of stuff that paved the way for um, John Denver, right? How, how, how are you seeing John Denver coming out of this? I just mean it was an alternative to this kind of stuff. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes exactly, exactly. Something with a with a storyline, right? <laughs> right? Right, right. So speaking of, of the story, um, this is uh, if I can t- go back to songfacts.com because I think this is fairly accurate. So according to Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book Four, a naiad nymph called Salmachus fell in love with Hermaphroditus, the son of Hermes and Aphrodite. When he bathed in her fountain, she embraced him and prayed to the gods to be united with him forever. The gods heard her prayer and merged their bodies together, transforming Hermaphroditus into an androgynous being. Hermaphroditus then cursed the Salmachus fountain so that any man who drank or bathed in its water would also become androgynous. Mm. So, I mean, that's a fairly obscure, if you're going to allude to classical mythology, that's, a, yes. that's a, kind of an odd one to do. To well, do. but it's highly sexualized, right? In it some is. sense. And that's maybe why they were drawn to it. I think so. I, think, I don't know. I think I th- maybe not so much kind of the the... The sexualization, but another thing you you see a lot in particularly British progress of this era is androgyny. Mm. And so like David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, Peter Gabriel, also the way he dressed on stage was kind of meant to kind of be kind of a mix between masculine and feminine. And so I think that's maybe if I had to pick one thing that you know, what drew them to the story, or drew Peter Gabriel to the story is kind of a mythological notion of androgyny. Mm. So it was part of kind of the, their, their elaborate stage act at the time. Uh, like I said, to, to my eye and ear, it does not age well. Yeah. It's pretty weird. Yeah. I, th- I was, as we were listening to the music, we were watching the performance. Uh, honestly, <laughs> it, it's not the, if you're correct to interpret this as a song about androgyny, maybe 
it's not that's not really the part of it that doesn't appeal to me. It's it's the over seriousness yes. of, of the performance. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the I would say the low quality of the way this song was written. Yeah, I, I, is that fair? I, I mean, fair. who am I to criticize Genesis? But I remember speaking of our college days, is that um, I had lots of heated arguments with with people about about pop music when you were supposed to be in class. Yeah, no, I was always went to class. Okay, this is, this is outside of class, maybe between classes. But I, I knew a couple of guys that were huge prog rockers, uh, and um, they denied that anything from Genesis after 1981 even exists. Hmm. So I, I imagine if I could go back in time and talk to these guys, they would say, oh, this is great. This is great this stuff. This is great stuff, right? And they'd be wrong. Yeah. Right. Well, there you go. Wrong then, wrong now. All right. Well, I think we need to wrap it up. We do. We, we got to get, get out, out of here. here. Yep. So, hey, Dave, before we go, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method and LLPSI, would you? Right. Uh, well, how don't, why don't we flip the script here? And why don't you tell us about them since you've been listening for low these many episodes? Well, listen, if you go to mossmethod.com, you will find uh, my colleague Dave's uh, wonderful method for learning Greek. Um, there are how many modules do you have? Four modules. Four modules um, that you can purchase, and this is a this is a um, this is a system. This is a um, a way of studying Greek that will take you from neophyte to erudite in an entertaining, engaging, and personal kind of way. Um, this is not just kind of press play and kind of you're on your own. You have direct contact with with, with Dr. Noe. There's the weekly Moffis hours where you can get together uh, via technology with people from around the world uh, studying Greek. And uh, as Dave often says this, you might be able to find um, better uh, systems out there. Maybe. Maybe out there um, in terms of what you get for the price and the personal contact, I, I, I would disagree. I don't think you can do better. Mm. And so uh, Nicely done, Winkle. So they, I should hire you as my pitch man. Yeah, yeah you should. So if, if the audience goes to mossmethod.com, they're going to find a lot of free stuff there. Right. You can sample a lot of the videos out there. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to, if this has been a dream of yours to learn Greek, if you want to kind of, you know, get deeper into some of the topics we talk about on this podcast... This this might be wow. for you. Now, can you do the same thing for LLPSI? I'm not as studied on that one, so I'm going to turn it over to you to talk okay. about the LLPSI. So if you want to learn Latin ab initio from the ground up, go to latinaperdm.com and check out my program using Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Book 1, Familia Romana, uh, Roma in Italia Est, Italia in Europa Est, Graecia et Italia in Europa Sunt, et cetera. And uh, you can learn how to read Latin, speak Latin, write Latin. And again, um, it's a, a program that I have designed for the beginner. And you watch me as I teach other Latin students, and you have the weekly interaction. It's a comprehensive course. As with the Greek, there may be better programs. I can't say. I'm not going to pass judgment on them. But in terms of value, I believe this is outstanding and cannot be beat. And uh, they can check out for free the hundreds of mini lessons. That thousands. You thousands actually. now. Yes, I'm oh. getting close to the 2K mark. Wow. Okay. Uh, we're going to do something special when we get to 2,000 of these four to six minute little mini lessons on more than 100 different Latin authors. Fantastic. On the YouTube channel. Yes. So check it out. And we need to audience. make, we need to, thanks, Jeff. We need to yep. uh, say some thank yous. Yep. Um, as always to, to Mishka. Uh, she might have to do a little bit more heavy lifting on this one because we're we're throwing these uh, kind of obscure um, songs and clips at her. She's tough. She She's can tough. take it. She can handle it. Um, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin, uh, thanks to these guys for the great music. Now, there's music. Up. There's music. No <laughs> mythological illusion, but I love the rapid virtuosic playing and the tight melodies. That's your wheelhouse I right like there. that. Yeah. Yep. 
Exactly. So, hey, um, we still need shout outs. Um, we still would love ideas for episodes. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Uh, you can write to Dave at Dave at Don't forget that V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V. Jeff, what are we doing next week? I think it's. Uh, I think we're at a TBA. Or it's another TBD, another isn't it? Yes, to it be is. determined. Yes. Uh, I'd like to tease that I have been thinking for some time now. Mm-hmm about devoting at least one episode to answering this question. Yes. What is classical education? That sounds bigger than one episode. Yeah, this is a hot topic, perhaps among many of our listeners who Mm. teach at classical schools. Some of them teach at uh, so-called classical Christian schools. They may teach at public schools, at charter schools, Catholic schools, uh, not teach at any schools. Uh, But this is a question very much in the air. What is classical education? And there are a lot of opinions out there. And guess what? What? Many of them I don't like. (laughs) So if we can figure out a way to put this together, I think we'll explore this. That sounds fantastic. Yes. Not next week, but it's, it's, uh, it's in the works. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a great idea. I'd be into that as well. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot today. I do. This is from a man named James Boswell, a historical figure about whom I know very little, but uh, his dates are 1762 to 1795. He is most famous as the individual who wrote the biography of the English author Samuel Johnson. Hmm. So this is James Boswell. He says, my definition of man is a cooking animal. The beasts have memory, judgment, and the faculties and passions of our minds in a certain degree, but no beast is a cook. I like that. It's kind of an updating of Aristotle. Isn't that nice? I like that a lot. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.